0: Hey, this is John Scardine with the Disaster Tough Podcast. We are doing a special recording at the Florida Hazmat Symposium. This week, I'm meeting with Michelle. She's a former student of our Emergency Management uh, Response for our Dynamic Populations course for the Readiness Lab. She graciously invited us out here so that we could set up a booth and observe all things hazmat-related for response. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. She's an SME in both Emergency Management and now in this hazmat space. She's one of the organizers for this. So with that very long introduction, Michelle, welcome (laughs) to the HAZMAT uh, special episode.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this, and we're happy to have you guys here.
0: Absolutely, so let's start off with 10 years, Florida HAZMAT Symposium, pretty big time. Uh, We're grateful to see the 10th uh, anniversary here. Tell us about what you guys are doing, why this symposium is so important.
1: So we found a gap in in HAZMAT-related trainings many, many years ago. and a bunch of us just got together and said, we identify this gap. There's this huge need for hazardous materials, classroom and hands-on training. And it started out as literally an idea at dinner one night and went on from there. And maybe less than 100 people the first year. And now here we are, almost 600.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, the, the room was definitely full this morning when, when they were doing opening ceremonies. The um, there, he actually reminded me of something when you said about dinner. There's a TV show from, I think, the 90s that I loved was The West Wing. Yes. And he said uh, Jedediah, for, or Jed for, uh, for President, and he yep. put it on a napkin. Yep. So you're following greatness yeah. with the greatest so. president of our generation, Jed uh, Bartlett. <laughs> um, historical document definitely there. So let's walk around and we can talk, and we'll probably just head that way. And as we're talking, maybe you want to talk about uh, some of the presentations I've ever given, like the, the context for this again and uh, we can just uh, walk and talk. And uh, our, by the way, this is the second time we've had Jason Perez from Disaster Glass. Say hi, Jason. Um, he did this with Wesley before too. So you're kind of our pseudo uh, video guy when we're doing these trainings, but let's walk around. We can say hi to a couple of the vendors she so can talk about the presentations and just kind of go from there. Also, just a heads up, we had questions on social media. we will right. probably ask, we'll sit down and we'll do those questions as well. So let's, uh, let's head that way. So. As we're walking, we get to, fall. oh, this is gonna be fun. Don't trip. <laughs> uh, as we're walking, as we're talking here, there's so many different types of vendors here. You know, Obviously we're promoting the Readiness Lab podcast network. We have public entities here. We have private entities here. What is the point of this symposium? Cause it's kind of like a conference. It's kind of like a symposium. It
1: is. Um, so we have vendors slash sponsors, and some of them are selling equipment hazmat related meters and um, level a suits and even drones. We have all kinds, but we also have like the pipeline industry.
0: Mm, (laughs) We have
1: virtual reality going on right next to us. You want to see that Jason?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We really like virtual reality. We hope they become sponsors in the future.
1: Uh, We're trying not to get in their way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is pretty amazing stuff. Honestly, we talked to them all this morning about the capabilities of uh, virtual reality and how it can help out firefighters. Also, emergency managers better prepare. So it's pretty cool that you get people here to do that. Absolutely. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but.
1: No, that's good. So we also have the pipeline industry. Um, You know, first responders need to know how to communicate with them. in The event of an emergency and how to react, what not to do to, you know, blow up the house a mile away if you cut off the line <laughs> nope. up down here. There was actually yeah. a video
0: of like that posted, what was it, uh, like a FedEx worker was delivering a package, so the ring camera turned on, and so the behind them, the, yes. the thing blew up, yeah. the house blew up? Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a scary scenario from a single unit perspective, but you also have like the Waco, Texas events where the fertilizer plant blows up yeah. and all the houses so let's let's talk about from that perspective a responder gets a call that waco texas happens west texas west texas w- waco texas that was we a different that was, the different that was issue. a whole <laughs> different issue. <laughs> well definitely they killed themselves right that was a hazmat okay. incident right yeah biohazard after the okay so west texas thank yes. you for the correction yeah. all my audience were like instant smack <laughs> on the forehead you could hear from here but as we're talking about things like West Texas, anything anything from a house fire or a house explosion from a gas line, to you know a fertilizer plant, what is that process from nine one one call to you know making sure that perimeters are set up and safe? I mean that has to. There's so many different types of hazmat incidents. Absolutely. How do you even? Where do you even start?
1: I mean, you know, every jurisdiction is different. The way they handle things from um, the first initial nine one one call and and what they're Policies and procedures say about who to dispatch or what units to dispatch, um, the first do. So a lot of times, hazmat teams are those specialty secondary call-ins. Mm. I mean, some locations, the local hazmat team might be more than an hour away. Yeah. So you know, we we're trying. This isn't just for those certified hazmat techs. This is for the everyday firefighter as well. You know, what to do in those, what to look for what to do in those first initial minutes when you arrive on scene and you recognize that, that there's a hazmat incident going on.
0: Yeah, the, the, I was actually talking to a bunch of members from Florida Task Force 4, which we're big fans of, and we know a lot of the members there, so shout out to them. We talked about like, if something goes wrong with a responder when they die, it's not only sad, but it also could be incredibly embarrassing for the department because the first question that a reporter is going to ask is, why didn't you? Yes. Why didn't you train? Why didn't you prepare? You want to be able to say, we did train, we prepared, we came to this stuff. In fact, there's a certain amount of hours that they, that responders, firefighters in particular, have right. to go through. And this is part of that, that training process, Absolutely. right?
1: Absolutely. We have the, uh, like we said, the classroom, uh, lecture type classes going on all week. And then we also have hands-on. We focus on hands-on. Yesterday was an eight hour, kind of like a, round robin several different we just did a round robin around <laughs> yeah town. we did um yeah. several different hands-on stations where they learn about leak control and using meters properly and um we had people in air packs and level a suits floating in the swimming pool because we are a beautiful daytona <laughs> beach yes and it's 70 degrees out today the nasa
0: so, launch or whatever yeah, yeah we launch, had a
1: yeah. rocket go off this morning so
0: you know the um one of your vendors here, Ansel, uh, they're the only Tyvek suits that can be reusable, right? I, I believe that they were telling me. And so, like, just having like, responders know that whether it's Ansel supporting with reusable suits or the fact that I don't have to throw away something every time, right. or these drone operations, or how do this even my own understanding of like tactical, even as a vendor here, right? Um, just like, okay, like, this is how that process happens. All of my experience of hazmat is being on the national strike team, and we look at catastrophic response from that 50,000 foot level. From me, that was like pure analytics, right? What do the analytics look like from there? From the ground level, you know, they a lot of questions would start forming their their mind, right? What are like the first, like maybe four or five questions that a responder will start asking themselves when they get a call like? a train derailment or a gas line leak. Is there like basic like perimeter? Like, I don't, I don't even know, like, what is the substance? Do I know what it is? What's the danger to the public? Those are just my yeah. guesses, but.
1: What is it? Trying to find out what it is, how much of it is there is. Oh,
0: quantity? Yeah, right. for sure. Um,
1: You know, is it actively leaking? Is it making a gas cloud, a mm. plume? What's the weather like? What's How's the weather gonna react with that? Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, um, and then citizens is a you know big chlorine cloud going over towards a neighborhood or Mm. elementary school and it's two o'clock you know on a tuesday afternoon when they're outside
0: right yeah yeah so yeah from my perspective of like either the historical events or from that national perspective we always worry about media media trying to get in and hurting themselves or providing like that rumor control is such an issue what was that experience there was an experience in brazil where unfortunately two boys uh, died after playing with the x-ray machine mm-hmm. and uh, without understanding how you know radiation works they thought the boys and therefore their families could get contaminated later on and so this whole town went out to essentially kill everybody that went to a funeral because mm. they thought oh, like you get contaminated right. just from touching right. the body and so it's like even that like level of awareness of what to do what not to do right we always had to think of the public's perspective not just Where are you at now? But hey, this is a contamination zone. Don't try to go get your kid, because if it's 2 p.m., you could not just hurt your kid and hurt yourself as well.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. And that's when you want to have a good communications department, public awareness department, and use the media to your advantage. Get that message out there in real time. Control the rumors.
0: Yes, control the rumors. Mm -hmm. Speaking of controlling the rumors and technologies and processes, you know, uh, I think we should switch a little bit. We're going to have Chief Jonathan Lamb, hopefully, a little bit later. Uh, let's sit down with him and yourself, uh, maybe Cy. We're going to reach out to Cy because she's awesome. She's also a former student of ours. And let's have a conversation about the technologies and processes from an emergency management perspective of what an emergency manager can do to help out a hazmat situation.
1: Absolutely. So let's go do that.
0: Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at dobermanemg.com today. The L3Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field tested it with medical, urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. Instinct Ready kits are awesome, compact, fully loaded, and easy to place around your office, school, campus, warehouse, wherever. I keep a quick pack in my vehicle and one at home. Imagine Instinct Ready fully loaded Stop the bleed kits in every school and office. Get Instinct Ready kits and training at InstinctReady.com. Okay, let's jump back in. Okay, fantastic. We just went upstairs and uh, Michelle and I had a great conversation talking about kind of the, the the parameters of what we want to talk about with the Florida Hazmat Symposium. Again, 10-year anniversary, so huge thanks to, again, allowing us to be out here. This is kind of our, for lack of a better term, our love note to Florida Hazmat Symposium for allowing us to come out here and see what firefighters, first responders, emergency managers, the whole group, emergency services are trying to do to better themselves and the field in HAZMAT. Uh, with me for this fun uh, second section, this, this panel discussion, of course, we have Michelle here on the end. We have Chief Jonathan Lamb. He's also the president, of, I believe, of the Florida HAZMAT Symposium. And we all have also Cy with us. Um, she is creating a business, I believe, called um, Cyanide. Cyanide. Yeah. It would be Cyanide. Uh, we'll, we'll work on that um, a little bit. But uh, either way, this is going to be a really great opportunity. Again, this is our way to say thank you and your way as an audience member to think about the implications for hazmat. We always talk about the hurricane, the wildfire, some of that stuff. But every incident that we respond to, especially the catastrophic incidents, are hazmat incidents. If you look at the wildfires in California, all the time and recovery that we use to have to go in there and decon the area and to remove all those hazardous chemicals, But also, of course, first responders are dealing with that as well. They're going in there and they have to deal with a potential hazard, a life-saving, life-sustaining moment where they have to make very quick decisions. And we don't want them to follow their gut. They don't want to follow their gut. They want to start going in there and saying, okay, based off of training, analytics, experience, all these tools and resources to go in there. So I'm going to start off with the president here, Chief Lamb. Um, Chief, as as we're talking about kind of the the basics of hazardous materials and dealing with hazmat experiences uh when you come up to a scene i asked this to michelle as well when you come up to a scene what are the the basic tenets or rules principles that you would want to follow as you so, show up to a scene i.e a train derailment uh we talked about pipeline explosion whatever it may be what what do you start doing it what are the check boxes for you
2: that's actually a, a great question and One of the things that we do as HAZMAT responders and even as incident commanders, it really starts before we ever get on scene. And you know, when that call comes in for a train derailment or a HAZMAT materials incident, the initial rollout of that comes from our dispatch center. So they're really starting to paint that picture for us on what we're responding to. So for me as a chief officer and even as a HAZMAT team lead uh, member, one of the things that I would do is I would take that critical information that I was given from our dispatch center on the way there and start running through my mind what are the things that we're going to see what are the potentials that we're going to have to work with so when i start doing that i start calling for resources early Mm. so you start talking about adding more manpower maybe another hazmat team depending on the information you got and then if the incident seems like it's going to go long or it may go than a normal operational period maybe two or three hours one key component that always kicked in for me was do we ask for our EOC to be stand up? Mm. Because that's really where our resources are gonna get called from if we have to go outside of our organization. Mm. And any large hazmat incident, like a train derailment, anything like that, it's gonna be larger than any one municipality or one hazmat team is gonna be able to handle. Mm. So the quicker you um, key in that emergency management component and standing up your EOCs and getting those requests in, the quicker you start getting all those assets, those resources, those materials moving. So I always try to look at it in a big overall operational period and all hazards type approach to say, okay, is this just a five-gallon bucket of gasoline that's been spilled on the ground? Well, that's easy for a hazmat team to mitigate, kind of clean up, get surrounded with, and take care of. Or is this going to be an incident that I'm going to look at a 24 hour operational period, 72 hour Mm. operational period. Well, that's gonna outdo my capabilities and my resources. So I'm gonna need some help with that. And that help starts at the EM level.
0: Uh, I'm shocked that you said that because everything I've heard about you, I heard that you can't be outdone with your capabilities. So pretty impressive (laughs) there, Chief. You know, a humble, humble leader there. So with the follow up with that, because you're talking about like the size you said obviously a large scale will require, require more hazmat. And of course, conceptually, that makes sense. When I think of emergency management from a national perspective, mm-hmm. I automatically know that there are financial thresholds that will require larger teams. Um, if we have large responses, sometimes we go all in for the emergency management, like almost like a Craig Fugate call out there, it's just like, send more than you need and we can scale back from there. Absolutely. Are there national standards for you like uh, we're gonna follow up with Sai here in a second, but uh, there's a book from, from Dr. Ali that uh, I'm gonna interview her here in a few weeks called Walk Through Fire. It's about a train derailment. And the officers, the police officers that showed up, they're looking at white tankers with no markings on them. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like scale of like, I think this is gonna go big or I don't know what this, what's even in this thing. What are the thresholds of like, this is one team, this is two teams, this is call, you know, call everybody. Sure. Uh, are there standards, or is it kind of just best guess?
2: A lot of times, what you do as a hazmat incident commander or hazmat responder is you look at what are the thresholds for your own team. How many yeah. leaks can you handle at one time? How many? I can only do one leak at a time. What? Just one at a time. One leak at a time. But uh, you know, you also look at is there. That was really messed up. But... <laughs>
0: We're gonna put that in the episode. That's yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But you look at uh, how many technicians do you have and then FPA standard gives you the standard on how many hazmat technicians you must have to do an entry into an incident, how many you have to have for a backup in case something happens to the two that are down um, field. So when you look at that and then you get to the incident or you get the information on the incident, you kind of piece all that together and you do your worksheet in your head and you go, okay, we have a train derailment, the information that's coming in, is we've got several cars that are leaking or on fire i know i have 12 technicians on today but it sounds like we're going to be doing multiple entries Mm -hmm. i need to go ahead and call for maybe that regional asset that regional hazmat team Mm -hmm. or the next closest hazmat team because i'm going to spend my first 12 hazmat technicians they're going to be spent just going Mm -hmm. downrange. one of the things that's nice about hazmat that we've always tried to teach our responders and especially our hazmat technicians is hazmat is very slow and methodical. Firefighters always have in their minds because of what we do. Structure fires, what are we doing? We're running, we're getting in there, we're moving, we're shaking. Car wrecks, all those things. Well, hazmat's a little different, you know, especially if there's no life safety involved or somebody needs an immediate rescue. So you have a little more time to be slow, methodical, ensure that you don't make mistakes and you're getting all your resources and assets put together and they're on the scene before you make that first entry and find out, oh crap, we don't have a decon line set up. Mm. So now I have my technicians sitting in those suits for another 45 minutes waiting for this to be set up, Mm. that to be set up. So it's very methodical when you go on a hazmat call and how you kind of proceed moving forward on that if there's no life safety hazards or nobody's in danger.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, really clean answers there. I immediately thought of uh, something that made the national news and I, I was lucky enough to work with LA Fire after, right after it happened, but there was a cannabis warehouse that was on fire. So they were responding to a fire, but they didn't know that there was accelerants inside of the, um, of the warehouse. And unfortunately, six firefighters, I think, were sent to the hospitals, or 12 firefighters were sent to the hospital. Um, really, really rough situation. And uh, the tools and the resources, uh, the skill sets needed... Even the, uh, like, the technologies needed to understand, like, what is around me. Mm -hmm. And it's no discredit to LA Fire. I mean, true professionals, absolutely. And they have tons of equipment. But you can't, you literally can't plan for absolutely every scenario. But you can start to minimize that. And with those standards that you mentioned, we can do that. From an emergency management standpoint, it makes me start to want to learn. When you start using um, terms or um, even books that are referenced or, you know, whatever it may be, I want to make sure that if you're calling back at the EOC, I know exactly what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the hardest uh, or most annoying parts of a response is people are saying the same words and mean something completely different. And so the fact that we can utilize hazmat training as thinking about every disaster as a hazmat disaster um, as an opportunity to learn and to communicate better so that Finally, one day we don't have to have communication on the top of AARs a- You know, is a, is a great call out there.
2: That's great that you mentioned uh, terminology and how we talk because if you remember several years ago, the big push for NIMS and to use mm-hmm. NIMS terminology and how we talk about things. And the big push for that was here in the state of Florida before we all went to NIMS, one of the things that we um, had in a lot of our departments were what we called tankers. Huh. It was a big truck that carried water, four or 5,000 gallons of water or more. Huh. So when you got to a large incident that didn't have fire hydrants or a wildfire, you'd hear guys get on the radio and go, send me a tanker, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, then when our, our men and women got deployed from here and went to California, and huh. they're starting to call on the radio back to the EOC, hey, we need six tankers located in this area. Well, to them, that's an airplane. That's oh. an airplane carrying water. Yeah. And there's a huge cost difference in the two. So <laughs> Also, now, where
0: are you going to put that water? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's so
2: funny. that's where the terminology changed for us. And we went from calling our tankers to tenders to follow the NIMS model.
0: Fantastic. And fantastic call out. And so if we're talking about uh, standardization of terminologies, whether it's through NIMS or through emergency managers trying to integrate more through, through learning on our own side, uh, one of the big things about and just a call out for dynamic populations, that course that we teach is we integrate emergency managers with first respond, you know, other first responders. I made this whole thing about first responders, so I can't call them separate. But like uh, whether it's military, whoever, get everybody in the same room mm-hmm. and work through the same pro- problem set in a training scenario um, is so incredibly important. In fact, we have two questions. I'm going to hand these over to Michelle. Michelle's going to answer uh, a, like a training scenario question because we're talking about how training and communications, how they should be integrated. So, Michelle, uh, our question here is from an audience member. Why are realistic full-scale exercises that include critical infrastructures, such as first responders, essential?
1: So that is super easy to answer. Um, Pulse, the Pulse incident that happened in 2016 is a perfect example. Every year, um, at least in Central Florida, we work with our first responders, hospitals, the airport, Mm. transportation, meaning our local bus or um, public bus systems, all of these critical infrastructure, we work together and we create a hazmat disaster and then also a mass casualty. So we surge the hospitals, all of our local hospitals, and when Pulse happened, we literally had doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, Mm. people who worked in the hospital who were thanking us and said that our full scale exercises helped them do their jobs because, and it helped them save lives.
0: Yeah. And and so huge there. And so just for like people who are listening to this episode, the pulse incident that she's talking about, we had chief Brian Davis, who's the incident commander on the Pulse nightclub shooting um, on our podcast, who I'm going to guess was between episodes 50 and 75. So you want to scroll back about a year, year and a half, uh, you can listen to that episode where he actually walks through that whole mm-hmm. thing and the decisions he had to make as the incident commander and how shocking it was, especially because as an active shooter incident, even with, a you know, thinking about the hazmat perspective, you know, that was not a traditional active shooter, i.e. didn't follow the pattern of 10 to 12 minutes. It was three hours. He mm-hmm. called himself a terrorist. He pled allegiance to a terrorist group. He would call news stations. He barricaded he had uh, you know he claimed he had uh, explosives with him definitely a hazmat for explosives and so that coordination piece in my mind while every disaster has lessons learned what was so impressive to me is that fire and law enforcement actually work together to save lives in a coordinated yes unified command talk about NIMS talk about ICS Mm -hmm. and really in that play there and Uh, I can't even imagine at this point, because the way that we uh, approach training now in our company, or at least with our group, is the idea of siloed training. You lose so much, and also it just helps out your training feel more realistic. Like one of the people who's always forgotten are the PIOs, public information officers. They're always crying and they're always uh, addressing the fact that they're like, "Hey, like you need to have a public relations arm of your training or finance admin." Another group that's always calling you out. Now we always run away from finance admin because we always want all the stuff, mm-hmm. but ultimately, in a response, especially a large scale response, when you're ordering all the hazmat stuff and you're, ordering, mm-hmm. they are a big part of that, and if they they need the training just as much as everybody else. So great, great example for Pulse Nightclub and the Pulse incident. And again, big shout out to uh, Chief Brian Davis for coming onto our podcast. And uh, explaining one of the most horrific experiences, probably of his career, um, in a in a way that can help us all out. And so, j-
2: John, just uh, adding to that too, you know, talking about that uh, exercise and scenario piece, we preach to to all of our first responders and our partners all the time. It's better to do these exercises and put names and faces together during an exercise instead of waiting for a true event to happen and figure out. Who's who in the playing book? Absolutely. You know, so that helps you really make those contacts. It helps put that name and face together. So when you know, hey, I need to speak to the director of the hospital, well, you've done exercises with that individual now. You've built that professional and personal relationship with them, and you really know their skill set. They know your skill set, and it makes for a lot smoother transition for not only the teams that are out there trying to mitigate the incident, but even that communication part back to our emergency management partners to help bring the resources in.
0: Well, I can only imagine, I mean, in a disaster you're working with so many people, but if you're in one of those hazmat suits and you're trying to communicate, (laughs) oh my gosh, I can only imagine how hard that would be. But, uh, you know, thinking about that in that context of like trusting the person across the room from you and, and having those training experiences one of the things that you know we want to start calling out on our podcast is if you're going to talk about training you know there's a misconception in emergency management or maybe disaster response where they everybody says every disaster is different i like to say if you think every disaster is different you don't know how to do analytics Mm -hmm. there's a reason why we create national standards there's a reason why we created nims and ics and are using gis and deep analytics and even artificial intelligence now because we know where the water is gonna go. We know if it is propane, it's heavier, it's gonna stay close to the ground. If it's something else, it could turn into a plume and go higher up. Time of day impacts, weather impacts, all this stuff, as Michelle called out earlier. Like, we can know what this happens. Now, maybe the unique circumstances of why the time of day or the circumstances that led up to an incident, but we can start attacking some of these issues. And I think one of the best ways to start attacking the issues where it doesn't have to feel so novice every time is using historical events to do that in fact we got a question about um historical events if you were going to Sai specifically if you're going to look at maybe a, a historical event we called out the uh you know um dr ali's book a uh, walk through fire um, where she talks about a train derailment in tennessee that led to fema if you were going to look at hazmat incidents where uh we could definitely learn a lot from the good the bad and the ugly are there certain incidents that come to your mind where you're like, okay, everybody listening right now, you should definitely study up on this right now.
3: Yes, there's actually the uh, Baltimore train derailment. I believe it was 2018, 2016. Don't quote me on that, but major, major incident.
0: Before 2024.
3: Correct. 18. Way before 2024. <laughs> um, that one was something that went from bad to worse, but because of the leader that was placed in there, um, the chief ran it spectacular from beginning to end, Um, and it is ICS to a T. It's talking about exactly what you were talking about. Yes, every event is different. Every disaster is different. However, there is a structure in place and you can deviate from that structure to add your interventions. Um, But for the most part, there is an algorithm and uh, he actually followed said algorithm perfectly from beginning to end. There are some footage uh, of the actual event on YouTube and whatnot. The the full footage is very hard to find unless you're in with someone in FEMA. But otherwise, it's a fantastic thing to watch. You know, a train crashes into truck, which ironically enough was being driven by an off-duty firefighter. Whoa. Um, Train explodes because train was carrying miscellaneous at the moment. no one knew after investigation, sure, nothing was you know hazardous to the extent of you know recall or calling it a hazmat team or specialized team, um, but regardless, it was treated as such. so he activated every branch he activated uh, assigned on the radio. he pretty much told everyone, "Hey, if you are not essential, hold all your traffic and on the spot, he created his org chart on the radio with his dispatcher in a matter of maybe two minutes That's
0: phenomenal.
3: Um, and the event ran perfectly from beginning to end. I,
0: I like how you said it went from bad to worse, but they still made the right decisions. You can do everything right in an emergency response and things could still go wrong and people could still be hurt. And one of the best examples, and you're an EMT also by trade, right? Paramedic. Paramedic. Oh, Oh my gosh i pay homage my coo she's also she'll say i'm a paramedic not an emt so i get it um <laughs> so big shout out to ashley for that one but uh in terms of like a medical uh and medical response especially on an ambulance all right at least we got that one um ambulance. what ambulance uh i'm sure uh, i'm sure in new york there's a ambulance uh we're gonna have uh jason perez down here in a second um Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So thinking about that perspective of like how disasters and medical relate, when I talk about how every disaster is not different, but all the circumstances could be unique. When and I think I've actually talked about this on my podcast before, uh, when my son was born, there was a major issue right as uh, he was, uh, he was coming out. And there was a crash team that went in there, a team of nurses went in there to an OR. And um, the hospital they were at, they said they hadn't seen something like that in 17 years. Mm. They had uh, two minutes to save my wife's life and my son's life. Mm. And uh, that, was, that was a difficult moment. However, just because it happened, it happened in 17 years, and just because the circumstances of what happened were unique, they were able to fall back on their medical training. If a heart stops, if there's too much bleeding, whatever it may be, the, if you're on the street and something horrific happens like somebody's stabbed, now that where they're stabbed might be different. but what you do to save somebody's life, you know, you follow that algorithm as you called out to make that. And so that's what I want emergency management to get to, and really emergency services is to think, okay, where it happens might change, but there is an algorithm to this, and we can be much more effective than that process. Baltimore train derailment, fantastic call out there, Size. so good job there. So just uh, I'm just going to open this up to the group, whoever wants to, to answer this question. But as we're we're wrapping up kind of this panel discussion, again, kind of a love letter to the Florida National Hazards uh, Symposium and what you guys are trying to achieve here as a nonprofit, as trying to educate the field, as uh, bringing in vendors. I'm calling out vendors here because they get paid by vendors, so help them out. So that's that's my shout-out for you their President. Yeah uh chief president president chief that's kind of a kind of a cool term president. um president chief oh oh man that's that's the power and glory of that um as you guys are thinking about moving forward with the hazmat symposium i want emergency managers to come there's so many fire uh so many hazmat teams per requirement for them to get training here but again speaking that common language making sure that we're talking about big picture here somebody was giving a great presentation about hazmat branding we're addressing that right now in emergency management where emergency management because of lack of standardization we don't really have a culture or a branding really solidified yet so even being in those conversations like how are you doing this right would would be good so if if you're going to make a pitch to my audience emergency managers or fire or even military personnel we have a lot of military personnel who are on here why should they come to like the florida hazmat symposium right.
3: yeah We'll start from left to right. All right. So it goes back to what Chief Lamb was saying and actually going back to your, your DIPOP class as well. It's putting those individuals in a room together. It's, it's exposure for everyone really. Um, and what I was saying earlier is there's usually a hazmat component to every disaster. It, it might be smaller, um, but you'd rather prepare for the bigger one so that you're able to scale back. Um, everyone is, they don't know how scared they are of hazmat until hazmat happens. So putting everyone in that scenario and, and kind of putting everyone in the same room together to expose them to hazmat is is super critical, no matter what industry you're in, because there is always a component in there.
0: Yeah, and just actually piggyback off of that one second. I actually didn't know, you know, even though I've studied Seaburn and I was kind of a Seaburn guy on my team, that even in hazmat, there are, I'd rather deal with, I don't think I'm ever going to deal with, and nobody ever really prepares for and working through that and one of the surprises for me were a lot of uh, the firefighters that I was talking to they would say they would say either rad or you know radiological incidents were the ones that they felt least prepared for And funny enough there was a team competition where they had to use radiological material and respond to that and it's just like again like I when I think of Seaburn, we've had Dr. Steven Johnson on this uh, podcast we've had other Seaburn experts and we talk about the gambit but again to be able to call out like hey, I'm nervous in this area. Okay, great. Let's find you an SME who can help you build that confidence. So if there's a radiological incident, you can do that or get training with those people, right? Having that material, by the way, they actually used real radiological material in the exercise. So that was pretty cool until I found out they were like putting it on the people and I'm sure it was completely safe, but I was like, I'm sorry, what? And so again, (laughs) maybe my understanding of radiological or rad, uh, is, uh, is is low and so it gave me an opportunity to say okay i want to go home and learn as well so
3: the paracelsus principle okay it's the dose that hurts you really it's the the dose that makes the poison
0: the dose that uh are you from florida originally are you from like new york because you started sounding like jason there for a second um the dose hey the salad dressing Um, If you're ever in New York City and you do not put enough salad dressing on a Caesar salad, I have a very strong feeling from a personal experience with a good friend on the other side of the camera here that you will hear about it a lot. So speaking of putting the the right ingredients of the salad together, Jason, um, just continuing the thought, why should my audience, why should emergency managers or military, other people outside the traditional field of hazmat uh, do it, President, president chief
2: So, you know, that's a that's a great question. And one of the things that I like to go back to is where I started in Clay County up near Jacksonville. Well, if you've never heard of them, they're civil support teams. A little after 9-11, they put together the civil support teams that can go out and do hazmat, do all those things, have all the tools. Well, the 44th CST was located and is located in Clay County on Camp Blanding. And uh, we did a lot of training. They still do a lot of training with our military partners and how that interaction would go between a government agency that's a small county and embed with the military. How are those interactions going? So, you know, I think that component of it has been strong for several years now and it continues to build. But I kind of look at that whole thing as a a train set. You know, If you're putting together a train set as a kid, if you leave out one piece of that track, well, the train doesn't go around the track or it may not function. So that's where emergency management fits into that, especially when you're talking a large hazmat disaster that you're gonna be going multiple operational periods. That EM aspect part of it for us is a lifesaver. That's how you're feeding your responders. That's how you're getting those resources there That's how you're getting those assets there to contain that thing. That's how you're getting your people home quicker. So the sooner you can key in your emergency managers and get them sitting there with the responders, the HAZMAT responders and talking that lingo, you know, you find out that, hey, EM and HAZMAT have a lot more in common than we thought. And it's like, absolutely, we're doing documents, we're doing paperwork, we're tracking resources, we're doing a lot of the stuff that you're doing in the EOC, we're not just the mop and glow boys. Yeah. We're not walking around in those big garbage bags and going, doo, 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 hey, this boy's.
0: What are those guys doing over there? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. So, you know, once that collaboration starts, EMCs that, you know, all of our emergency managers will see where they fit into that train track piece and keep the train on rail and running like it needs to be. So um, it's huge to have that partnership and get them to come to conferences like this. And I I know it's not sexy and appealing when you really talk to EM managers and go, hey, why don't you come to a hazmat symposium? They're like, "Uh, I sit in the office all day and I'm not going to some mop and glue classes with you guys.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna call you out on that right now because anytime uh, an emergency manager gets the opportunity to hang out with firefighters or <laughs> uh, hazmat or do anything, get out of that office. We jump on that opportunity. So again, communications, right? I'm um, communication. Absolutely. The, there is probably this is probably the easiest pitch in the world to emergency managers to come to one of these things. One, Daytona Beach, so mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Two, the the material and the source content. But when you hear a fire chief say. We have a lot in common. We want to work together. And maybe they hear misconceptions even on this podcast. They're like, ooh, I would love to be able to clear that up. Mm-hmm. Um, they want that opportunity to jump in, and they want that invite. So if That's they have awesome. it, they're they're going to come. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. I would I would love nothing more than to see our HAZMAT teams and HAZMAT responders sitting right next to an emergency manager and going through the exact same scenarios, exact same classes that those technicians are, because that would really bridge that gap of communication that you see a lot with our teams communicating back to our EOCs, to our emergency managers. That, that lingo and that relationship is really not built as strong as it needs to be. And uh, I think you see a lot of emergency managers that they do have those good relationships. I think of St. Johns County and I think of Uh, Duval County when I was up in that area that how their EOC and their emergency management work so closely, not just with that fire department, but with their hazmat teams, their incident commanders for hazmat teams. And I think a lot of that um, push for that was everything that happened on 9-11. You look at all the anthrax calls we had. Everybody was doing their own thing. Do you go in a level A suit? Do you go in a level B suit? Well, this county's going in level A suits. Well, you don't really need a level A suit, so you need a level B suit. You don't need to put the patient in the back of the rescue because now you've contaminated that rescue, put it out. And there was not that collaboration between emergency management and the field to say, hey, here's a unified approach to this. We can get you subject matter experts and from the hospital that are here in the EOC working that ESF. And they're going to walk you through that process now you have that standard checklist and you're doing it the same so that really changed the mindset of our hazmat teams uh that was set back for decades because there was not that collaboration there
0: the the magic uh the magic acronym you used there was esfs so emergency support functions for me is probably that and really lifelines but emergency support functions for me really helped me as I was learning my career, all the different players in response. I'm ESF-5, I get it. You know, USAR's ESF-9, whatever. So as we're going through that, it's like, okay, ESFs, emergency emergency support functions is a really long way to say emergency services. Utility companies, when their gas line explodes, guess who's all in on that emergency response? Mm -hmm. Now again, their their job is different, but their emergency support function, i.e., emergency services, in that moment, and that's not again to take away from the tacticians because they need it. The other part that you called out is like you said I, you'd, you'd love nothing more than to sit next to an emergency manager. You're welcome because I'm here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. oh, between the two of us, you're like an emergency management sandwich right now. Uh, that's E and M. Um, The the thing I like to tell firefighters is, like, emergency management's here because, you know, on a serious note, you know, even you guys need a hero. And uh, we'll do everything we can uh, to help you and support you and to do everything we can. (laughs) Keep the mic away from him at this point. Okay. Okay, Michelle, rounding this out, you're an emergency manager. You teach emergency management at a university you've been to the dynamic population class where you see this integration and you are, I don't even know your official title here, but you are like, it's like the Michelle mafia here. Like you're like basically running the show from your perspective of seeing all this stuff and also a law enforcement background. What is your pitch? Why should other people come here?
1: So we do have emergency managers here. Not as many Mm. as we'd like, but we do know there's some, yes. We're calling you out, emergency
0: managers, get here.
1: So, in the world of emergency management, emergency preparedness—it's you don't have to be a subject matter expert on anything or everything, but knowing who to call—that's the key. Fantastic. Bam.
0: Yes, <laughs> mic drop. Do, please don't drop our mics; they're expensive. <laughs> um, yeah, and great call. And great, great way to round that out. Like knowing who to call, who to be in the room. Nothing's more emergency management than thinking about the coordination of emergency services. Who are all your ESFs? I have unfortunately been in incidents where without a tactical background, I was required to do a tactical response because I worked for an organization that assumed emergency operations planner is embedded with physical security Mm -hmm. and uh, quickly had to uh, live up to an expectation of helping people. Now I wanted to help people. After After that moment, I made sure I got a ton of extra training from other federal agencies and other different sources that could give me the tools if I ever had to be in that situation again. Luckily, I never have. But uh, at the same time, um, I also worked very hard to work with organizations like the Federal Police Service or um, the FBI or uh, other ABC agencies in D.C. That if if a man-made incident was going to happen, not only would... I have the training, the minimal training as an amateur, uh, to be able to respond. But immediately calls would be made to different groups, and not just the 911, but to Chief Lamb, right? Getting that. You mentioned the 44th. We had the commander of the 44th teach or present at our training at Dynamic Populations, and what an opportunity! We've had Colonel McKinney, who's head of uh, Task Force 46, on the podcast, and they're in charge of all cyber responses in the United States, and they do. Uh, these amazing full-scale exercises where they bring everybody that they can think of to the table and do an, uh, an, a very intense real uh, uh, scenario so that they can go home and scale back and do you know, the, the smaller incidents that's needed. And so just want to thank, again, Cy, Michelle, and uh, President-Chief, uh, Chief President, for coming onto the podcast. Now, because technically we have... A, a secret weapon with us, Jason Perez. I'm actually going to allow him to close out this episode. Although I did take the majority of this episode, he had two additional questions that he found, and we're actually going to share this episode on disaster class and disaster tough. Because again, Florida's uh, hazardous materials symposium were gracious enough to invite us both out. Uh, I'm going to let him close out the episode, and I will be the video guy for the next, you know, five minutes. Here you go, Jason,
4: with that New York accent. That. Anyway, so I have uh, a couple of questions from our disaster class followers. Um, so the first one is from Anthony on our Instagram, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what he said. But he's asking what resources are available for civilians, right, your individuals, your households and families to understand their local hazmat risks and what resources is available that they can look at and how they can better prepare.
1: So I guess everybody's looking at me. So here I go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There actually is a federal law, the emergency planning and community right to know or EPCRA for short, and anybody can contact their local LEPC, which the LEPC stands for local emergency planning committee. Every state is different. But every state per that federal law is required to have LEPC coordinators. So um, any Joe Schmoe off the street can contact their LEPC coordinator and ask what's in their backyard? What's being, what is that factory doing next to my children's elementary school? What kind of hazards are there that I need to be aware of? Awesome. Yep.
4: Very good. And is there any, as far as um, like individual preparedness, right? So on disaster class and Instinct Ready, we focus a lot on, you know, having a go bag, an emergency kit, things like that. So what, are there any resources that you would recommend that people have on hand in their home in their little emergency kit on on uh, to be prepared for such an incident
2: yeah no, no, sir. Uh, yeah i'm gonna give it to Sai. you know little queen bee over there wants to talk now
3: <laughs> wise choice sir wise choice um it's really no different than any other scenario that involves evacuations, you want your, your basic necessities. So you know your your boo boo kit, you know your first aid kit, um, close anything roughly for 72 hours. So all uh, medications as well. If you can if you can manage to push it out to two weeks and get creative, great. But you know 72 hours is a rough time frame. But you don't have to get creative. You know it's an evacuation. Assume that a disaster is a disaster.
4: Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things we, we put, we focus a lot on with our our, our listeners is ha- even having just an evacuation plan, right? It's more than just having some gear and some stuff. But like, if you do need to leave, do you know your evacuation routes and where to go and an event like that? So, yeah, excellent call outs. Um, so, this next question, um, very serious. Um, and I'm really curious to hear your answer. So, so which hazardous material is most likely to give me superpowers
2: well um i can tell you now that uh if you were to uh lick an mekp drum that would probably be the best thing you could do and it will probably give you superpowers i just don't know that you would live through it (laughs) awesome no uh uh well, I'll tell you this: uh, Michelle will give you superpowers. She's a hazardous material, so uh, uh, just be careful when you're around her. She's uh, always giving off this radiation type glow. For the
3: next year's president. Yeah, exactly.
2: Because this one's gonna be dead. <laughs> but yeah, you know that was great. On a serious note, and I know you're about to wrap up. Before you do, though, you know, I need to give a shout out to you guys for coming this year what a uh, tremendous collaboration with the two of y'all this has been like family with y'all being here this week and what a great call we're so glad that you're here and Jason, we know that you're the real backbone behind the company. So I'm glad that somebody you.
4: recognizes it. So thank you.
2: <laughs>
4: so uh, on that note, we're going to wrap up on a positive yes. note there. So uh, as there always, you know, make sure you like, subscribe, give us that thumbs up, that five-star rating. Um, write into to um, send us an email or a message on our social medias. Tell, you know how you like this episode me hosting versus john we want to hear it so (laughs) but uh yeah so we'll catch you next week on disaster tough thank you guys so much